Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. The mid-morning sun had already cast shadows over the outer city, and it's now hovering over the hectic marketplace. It's in rare form today, the, the usual buzz of those buying and, and selling and, and doing their trade in the market. Commerce is taking place, and yet over in a corner, if you're not used to the customs and the, the way that things work, you would swear that there's a riot breaking out. The shouting, the, the arguing in a language that I I, I couldn't translate or, or interpret for you. Apparently it has something to do with the price of the goods that are being sold and the, the price that was promised and the weights and the measures and, and the guys on the outside of the booth are angry with the guy who's sitting behind the scales. Those in their daily process here in the market, those uh, regulars who come here every day, they don't even blink an eye at it. It's just the way that things are done here. It's how you do business. And in the midst of the heat that has started to build and the mass of humanity, from the far side comes a young boy running, his arms flailing all over the place. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. He's not speaking to anybody in particular, yet to everybody in general. And the marketplace is caught up for a moment in a pause. Uh, people are just kind of staring for that, that, that just little second when you're, when you're startled, when something happens that you don't expect. And then immediately, like an anthill that's been kicked over, everyone starts to scramble. Whether they've taken the time to, to, to lay out, to sell that day is quickly wrapped up and, and put in a bundle, and the people start to move. Mothers send the oldest children out to the fields to get the father and, and to tell him to come on, Jesus is coming to town. And as quickly as the marketplace was set up that morning, it's even now more hurriedly emptied, and everyone starts to run. The young lad is the first to announce, he's come back to our town. You see, by the end of chapter one, rumors have spread. Everyone has their own thought of what he, what he looks like and, and what he does, stories that are, that are way, way too incredible to believe. And yet the reality is that people are walking that previously haven't walked. People are looking who before couldn't see. People are living who were on the edge of death. And everyone runs to be the first on the scene. Somewhere amidst this, this mashup of people, somewhere in the midst of this emergency break that's been pulled that stopped everything in the marketplace in the entire city, somewhere in the midst of all that, a man stops. And this man thinks, what about Pat? Pat's not gonna get here today. Pat probably doesn't wanna be here today. But what about Pat? But this is a mission that, that, that one guy, one solo man cannot do alone. So somewhere in the, in the midst of the gaggle of humanity, he has to grab a friend and then another and then a fourth. And he pulls them out of the rush and into the excitement. What about Pat? And the four of them set off. And the disruption that they're about to cause this day will not just split a city. This disruption will cause a separation for people in our day and age because we're still simply split into two groups of humanity. 
And little did he know that stopping there in the midst of the crowd all running to see Jesus, he is about to set up something that 2,000 years later, you're going to have to choose which side you're on. To get to that scene and, and what happened and where you and I stand today, we're going to finish off chapter 1 because our story has just started us into chapter 2. We're five weeks into this series on the, the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, the story of Jesus. And, and Mark, who is informed by Peter, is writing this book about Jesus. Everybody knows some miracles. Everybody knows some of the teachings. Mark is doing the heretofore untold story. It's the first gospel that we have. It's not first in the order in our Bibles, but it's the first one that was written chronologically. And it's trying to answer the question, it's trying to look at the question of who is this Jesus truly? Beyond the miracles, beyond the teaching, who is this man? Is he myth or is he Messiah? And in chapter 1, we started to uncover story after story after story, place after place, what happened in this, in this little area on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. What happened up there that over the course of the next few years is we'll end up inside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And over 2,000 years later, still will remain on the covers of our magazines. Who was this Jesus that, that split the fabric of time that our, our very dating system today in 2021 still screams back at? Who was this man that today, whose name is seen as savior or for some as a swear word? Who was this guy? Well, we're still in chapter one, but we're going to begin chapter two today. And if you've missed the first four weeks, you, know, you can go back and catch the podcast, but I'm going to give you a real quick synopsis here to catch you up. So Jesus walks on the seashore. And he announces, he says, the kingdom of God is near. He's, he's talking about the kingdom of God. He's not just talking about heaven later. He's talking about God ruling in your life now. It's near. It's close to you. It's come. All you have to do is to repent, change your lifestyle, and believe in Jesus. Now, it always involves cashing in an old lifestyle, turning away from everything else, forsaking all, and following him. And to demonstrate this, as he walks along the seashore, he sees some fishermen, and he tells them, he says, follow me. And they leave their boats, their father, they leave everything else to follow him. Then the first time in church, a demon-possessed man screams out, and with the simple words, be quiet and come out, the demons flee from the man. And the people in church that day, they're amazed, they're blown away. What kind of authority is this? This isn't religion. This is power and authority. We've been playing religion our whole life, and we've never seen anything like this before. And he stays up into the, into the dead of night, healing all of the sick and all of the diseased. And, and yet very early in the morning, long before dawn, he got up and he went out to a solitary place because he knew that the line would be lining up again next to the door. He knew everyone wants to bring their hurts and their needs. I mean, who doesn't want to be healed? Who doesn't want a savior? But he didn't come just for healing. He didn't come just to be savior. He came to be Lord. And he got away from those that were bringing their hurts and their pains because he simply wanted to teach. And we pick up at the end of chapter 1 in verse 40 in the book of Mark. And it says there, a man with leprosy came to him 
and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Take your life notes if you haven't already, that half sheet of paper that was given to you when you walked to the door. Look there where the scripture is. Circle the word if. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Bible in one sentence tells us everything we need to know about this man. He has leprosy. And now in the first century, this is a death sentence. In the first century in Israel, especially, you have, you have the, the books of the law, like Leviticus chapter 13, chapter 14, going back to the first five books of the Bible, the books, the law of Moses. Laws where it says that, that anybody with an infectious disease, in Leviticus 13, explains how you get the infection. It's, you know, this is the gross part of the Bible. It's a part that they didn't, didn't cover in Sunday school, I don't think. You go and you show yourself to the priest. And the priest will see if it's white with infection and, and, and with pus and, and if it's oozing. And if so, then you have to, you have to stay out for another seven days. And as long as you're, you have this infection, you have to stay outside the city. If it clears up, good. You're, you're good to go. There's some little sacrifices you have to give. And then you get to be restored to fellowship with everybody else. But if not, you have to be excluded. You have to be outside. And way before we understood bacteria... 3,300 years before science will, will catch up with, with the microorganisms in biology, God says, I created the body. I understand infection. Trust me. Laws that will save you. If anyone has a skin disease, they're to be kept separate. They're to, to wear sackcloth. And these are the clothes of the dead, the dying. And just so visually, everybody can see and everybody can know this is a person you need to stay away from. And anytime you're in public, you have to cover your mouth and, and you have to feel unclean. Unclean, so people are warned to stay away from you. Everyone has to stay basically two large paces. So you thought social distancing was new, didn't you? Here it is, back in, back in Leviticus. Everybody had to stay two large paces or basically six feet away. You don't mess with infection in this time. Unfortunately, in, in that day and age, leprosy was the king of diseases. And it's a, it's, it's a slow killing of the nerves. It's going to start as a, as a small rash on the skin. Usually the hair will fall out, and, and then it'll spread, and it'll become numb to the touch. And it'll be, it'll be spread. It'll, it'll go to the outer extremities, the, the cooler parts of the body. It'll infect the, the, the toes and, and the fingers, and most of the time it'll get into the nose and, and the nostrils, and it'll slowly begin to deform the body as it eats away. But you don't usually die from leprosy. You can have leprosy for 20, 30, 40 years. It can live on its host and it has a very crippling effect on the individual. You usually die from the effects of leprosy. You see, with the numbness that you have, you don't know when you're cut. Have you ever done that? Have you ever cut yourself or you've gotten a splinter and like three days later you notice, oh, I've got a splinter and it's infected. And you don't remember when it happened? It happens to me. You don't know when you've been infected. You don't know if there's even a thorn in your foot. And usually it's the infection that kills you. Leprosy itself, will, it'll turn your fingers inward and you'll end up with club feet and, and usually with giant sores on the bottom of them. And you will live life isolated. You will live life alone. You will be untouchable. You will be unlovable. You will be unreachable. You're excluded from all spiritual service, all sacrifices. And you have to remember that in Judaism in the first century, all of your social, all of your holidays, all of your celebrations revolve around the temple and the sacrifices and the religious celebrations. You will not be invited to a, to a single party. 
And the law says that anything that you touch will be unclean for 24 hours. And if anything touches you, it will be unclean for at least 24 hours. But this man has heard a story. If, if you are willing, you can make me clean. This is long before modern science, long before 1871, when Dr. Armour Hansen, a Norwegian, discovered that this disease was caused by bacteria that lives on the skin. We now call it Hansen's disease. Long before the 1980s, when scientists determined that there were three medications put together, three antibiotics you could use, and you could cure the leprosy. You couldn't infect anyone anymore. So simply antibiotics could cure Hansen's disease. Long before we understood any of that, Leprosy was a death sentence. That's what this man is coming to Jesus. He looks and he walks like the walking dead. And he shouts, unclean. And somehow these stories have reached him. There's a man that can heal people. What about us? This isn't a fever. This isn't a farming accident. This isn't blindness. This is walking dead. If you were willing I believe you can make me clean. In verse 41, it says, filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, circle that word immediately. And every time, when you're reading through the gospel of Mark, I encourage you to circle. Every time you see immediately or at once, I've told those of you that have been here the last few weeks, I told you those are kind of key words. Words like immediately, at once, the word amazed or amazement. You'll find these over and over in Mark's gospel. It says, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. I love this. Filled with compassion. Now, these words are translated in some texts saying Jesus became indignant. Well, is he filled with compassion or is he angry at the man? Well, that didn't make sense for him to be angry at the man. What they're trying to explain here is a word in the Greek that says he was moved in his inmost parts. We, we often, how many of you ever said, I have a gut feeling? You know, you know what I'm talking about there. Humanity's always said, I feel it in my gut. And it's one of those things that you just can't, you can't explain. It's down deep inside of you. And this is what this word that's used here in the original text means, that, that Jesus was moved in his inner core with what? He has incredible compassion for the man himself, and he's incredibly indignant that, that he's created us to be whole. He's created us to be healthy. But as a result of sin and as a result of the fall, he's indignant at that. Because of that, that is why this man is broken. This man is a, is a picture of what sin does. It's a picture of us without Christ. It's a picture of us far away from where God wants us to be. Outcast, rejected, unlovable, untouchable. And Jesus is indignant that this has happened to creation, yet he's moved with compassion for the man. A man that just speaks words and demons obey is rocked to the core with compassion. It didn't about where this guy has ended up in life and, and what life has done to him. So he moves forward and he touches that which is not to be touched. He puts a hand on a man who hasn't experienced human touch in a very, very, very long time. He reached out and he made contact with, he, he connected with one who cannot have contact or connectedness. And according to Leviticus, the law say, you touch someone who's unclean, as I said, then you're unclean. 
So I guess the question is, is Jesus now unclean? And yet if you showed up on the scene and you say, you can't do that, Jesus say, do what? You can't touch a leper. If you do, you're unclean. He goes, what leper? Looks clean to me. I make unclean clean. I can't be unclean. I take unclean and I make it clean. And this brings us to a phrase that we're going to be using over and over again. We're going to see a story where Jesus breaks it all down today. But to get to that, understanding the Jesus stories, when we go back and read the Jesus stories, I want you to keep this in mind. The way Jesus dealt with people then is the way he deals with us now. Read that with me. The way that Jesus dealt with people then is the way he deals with us now. This is what we're looking at. Jesus is God on earth, which means he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He hasn't gotten smarter. He hasn't gotten any better at his job. He hasn't figured out people over time. He doesn't go back and get another degree. He is God. He always was, always is, always will be. He is outside of time. And our linear brains have a hard time trying to picture a God who is outside of time, a God who always is. No, God created time. God stands outside of time. And so as we read these stories, and we need to always keep this in mind, that the way that Jesus dealt with people then is the way that he deals with us now. Okay, some of you got it. The way that Jesus dealt with people then is the way that he deals with us now. We are in the story. I want to ask you, what is your if? What is your if? What is it that you look at in your life and go, oh, I know God heals people, but you don't understand where I've been. You don't understand what's been done to me. You don't know what I've done to others. What is it that you keep hearing about a God that does stuff for people, but you have your if? He heard the stories, but he didn't understand his God. You see, the way that Jesus dealt with people then, okay, let's go. Let's come on, remedial. The way that Jesus dealt with people then is the way that he deals with people now. And this is coming to the reality of this is who I am. But there's a greater reality of who this God is and what he wants to do. And it brings us to number two. The way that Jesus dealt with people then is the way that we should deal with people now. The way that Jesus dealt with people then is the way that we, those of us that call ourselves Christ followers, should deal with people now. And if we keep these two statements in mind as, as we go through the Jesus stories, that the way that Jesus dealt with people then is the way that he deals with people now, and if I'm a follower of Christ and the way he dealt with people then, he expects me to deal with people now. And it begs the question, who are my unlovable and who are my untouchables? Who are my unlovables and who are my untouchables? Now today, it rarely has to do with disease because science has gotten us so much smarter. It, you know, today, it rarely has to do with someone's infection or, or something that, where they're clean or unclean physically. No, today, the line we don't want to cross is, is someone who is adamant, dare I say it, politically. Someone who's on the opposite side of where I am, where they are adamant politically. They're the lepers in our minds. It's someone whose lifestyle or, or sexuality is different from our lifestyle or sexuality, and we find them unclean. 
It is those who may have hurt us, and, and we call them enemies. And the Bible said this, this is where you need to step out and love. And it'll bring us to where we're going to go next week. You don't want to miss next week. If you think this week's going to challenge you next week, I'm warning you, it's going to challenge you even more. If you want to be challenged, don't come back, okay? Jesus says, let me tell you how to look at others and them because there are no others and them. Mark chapter 1, verse 40 to 45. Here's what you got to understand. Write this down. When we approach Jesus, we enter into his willingness, not his reluctance. We enter into his willingness, not his reluctance. If you are willing, you can make me clean. You know, I wonder if this caught Jesus for a moment. If I'm willing, why do you think I'm here? What do you think this is all about? Dude, I'm willing to go to the place of death for you. That's how willing I am. And he's rocked to the core. He's indignant about where you find yourself in life and, and how lost and broken and unlovable and untouchable you feel. Even though in a crowd, we can all mask it, can't we? Many people have a view of a, of a God who's, who's just sitting up there waiting, you know, with the lightning bolt to zap you, you know, to, to, to pop you on, to, to, to blast you. And yet when you read the stories of Jesus, it's consistently a Jesus that says, I know who you are. I know where you come from. I know what you've done. I know what's been done to you. And we step into his willingness. May your guilt and your shame draw you to God. Never push you away from God. May what you've done and how unlovable you think that you are be the very source that draws you towards the God who loves you more than anybody ever will and more than you can ever imagine. We enter into his willingness, not his reluctance. And when Jesus touches the man, he immediately becomes clean. And Jesus has one thing to ask this man, one favor to ask him. It says in verse 43, Jesus sent him away at once. Again, that's like immediately at once. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. You know, Jesus wanted to make sure this guy, we'll call him Leper Larry, okay? He wanted to make sure that Leper Larry understood that, I know he's not a leper anymore, but just use that term. He wanted to make sure that he got this. He said, see that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. This is the Leviticus 13 and 14 stuff. Instead, circle instead. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Hey, buddy. Leper Larry, I got, I got one favor to ask. Just don't go telling anybody about this. What? What are you talking about? I'm going to be the greatest PR you ever had. And Larry's sitting there with his smartphone. He's already drafted something to post on his Instagram and, and on his Facebook. You know, he's getting ready to send sin. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Just go show yourself to the priest. That will get you back into society. That will get you back into fellowship. It'll allow you to, to participate in, in the religious ceremonies and, and in celebrations. It'll get you back in society. And by the way, don't be surprised a little bit whenever you go to the priest and, and, and you tell him this because he's going to say, whoa, I've never seen this before. 
And chapter 13 and 14 said there's certain things that they need to do. And I bet he hasn't used those chapters in, in quite a while. But I don't think he's seen a, a healed leper in, in quite a while. You know, this is going to rock the temple. It's going to rock the synagogues. Instead, Leper Larry wants to run and tell everybody who he is and what he's done and what he's been. And as a result, Jesus' plans are foiled. We ended last week with Jesus saying, let's go into the nearby towns and villages and teach. That's why I've come. And now because of these stories spreading, Jesus can't go into the nearby towns and villages because he has to stay outside and the crowds have to come to him. Crowds are coming to him because they want to get. They want their problems solved. They want healed. They just want the, they just want the, 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 the healings. Jesus... He wants their life. And the crowds are coming with entirely different expectations than what Jesus wants to do for them because of people like Leper Larry and his insteads. Don't you love your insteads? Instead looks like this. The Bible clearly says, here's how I want you to live your life in this area. Instead... Here's what the Bible says about sexuality. Yeah, but that's, that's good for an old-fashioned, you know, 2,000-year-ago prudish uh, culture, but, but, but I know better now. Instead, here's what the Bible says about loving others. Oh, that's good when it comes to those who, who love me. No, no, no. Here's what the Bible says about loving those people who don't love you. Well, well, no, no, no. Instead, and we all have these insteads in life. You could write it down this way. The struggle for a Christian will always be between God's greater plan and our desires. The struggle will always be between God's greater plan and our desires. For a lot of us, it's not even blatant sin. It's just the desire that, that we have versus what God's plan is. If you were to grab Leopard Larry right now and say, buddy, you're sinning, he'd be like, sinning? I'm just telling everybody about Jesus. Yeah, but Jesus said not to. He gets to be the God of your insteads. But I'm just telling everybody what God has done for me. Yeah, but at this point, you don't realize what you're doing is causing a train wreck for what he wants to do. And for you and me, we have these places where the Bible speaks clearly, but because 2,000 years later, we're, we're smarter, we're more civilized, we're, we're, we're highly educated, we, we know that that doesn't apply to my sexuality, that doesn't apply to my greed, that doesn't apply to the way I work, it doesn't apply to my relationships. This is the way that we have to do it today. And God said, this is what I need you to do because of what I've done for you. Instead, oh, I think this would be better for us, Lord. And the very next story, as we start chapter 2, he starts to enter the town. It says in verse 1, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to him. Now, there it is again. Circle the word preached. And for those of you that have taken notes the past two weeks, what do we put besides preached? A number... Number five. Number five. Go back and listen to last week again or look at your notes from last week. This is why you need to keep notes. This is the fifth time, the fifth time in barely a chapter and a couple verses that it talks that Jesus is there to teach or to preach. 
You're going to see this throughout. Mark is saying, look, his goal is to teach. His goal is to change you, not just to bless you. You come with all your problems, and Jesus, filled with compassion, will work with your problems, but his main goal is to? Let's try it again. His main goal is to? Teach. His main goal is to teach. And if we follow a God whose main goal is to teach, our number one goal better be to learn. It better be to learn, not just get what we want to get. In verse 3, it says this. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, they lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw, what does it say? Their faith. When Jesus saw their faith, circled their faith, highlight, underline that. When, they saw, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And this is where we started within our story this morning. The marketplace is flooded with this daily activity. The young boy comes running in. Jesus is coming to town. Everyone's heard these stories, and they start moving. And somewhere amidst the crowds, somewhere in the street, somewhere in this flow of traffic, all headed in one direction to where Jesus is going to be speaking. They're trying to get there to get, a, to get a good seat, to get inside the house if they can. There's a lone man that stops and says, what about Pat? What about Pat? Three blocks in the other direction, two blocks over to the left. An old double-wide trailer, crumbling down wooden steps, a rickety front porch. And just inside the screen door there, there's a mat. And that's where paralyzed Pat spends his days. He has friends, he has family that will come and make sure he's fed. They'll come and make sure and, and clean up whatever they need to clean up. But in that front room, in that double-wide trailer, that is where Pat spends his life. And someone, we'll just give him a name just so we can talk about him, Craig. Someone, this guy named Craig, knowing that he could get to Jesus on his own, realizes that Pat can't get to Jesus on his own. And along the way, he realizes that he's going to need some help. So he's fighting his way through the crowd, and he'll, he'll grab Bill, and he'll grab Jim and Kyle. Not the real names. I'm just giving them names, okay? He'll grab, grab them somewhere along the, along the way. And these four able-bodied guys, they're able-bodied enough to carry a man up to a roof. They're able enough to, to, to lift a dead weight, and they will carry him all the way through the city. They can, they can run ahead of the others. They decide to go against the flow. And so they go up three blocks, and then two blocks over. They go across the tracks, up the rickety steps they hurdle. The screen door is kicked off of its hinges, and they each grab a corner of the mat that paralyzed Pat is on. And nowhere... Nowhere does it say that he even wants to be there. Nowhere does it even say, oh, good, guys, I'm glad you're here. I want to see Jesus too. And my bet is he doesn't. The text shows that. And by the time they bring him to the house, they're out of breath. There's a huge crowd outside. There's probably 50, 60, 70 people gathered outside the house, and it's already packed inside. Well, Craig, this is your, this is your idea. Let's, let's get him in. So they put Pat down, and, and Craig goes up to some of the people outside the house. Oh, excuse me. Excuse me. Shh, shh. Jesus is teaching. Yeah, but we got a problem here. Yeah, we all got problems. Go solve your own problems. And Craig goes back across the street and says, uh, guys, uh, maybe we can just wait until it's all over, and then, then we can, then we can get, him, get him in. And then that's when Pat says, you guys, just take me back home. I don't want to be here. Just, just. Don't put me in front of the crowd today. Let's let me go home. 
And then Jim realizes, wait a minute, look, look up, there's no one up on the roof. You can't, but you can't see anything from the roof. I know, but I'm thinking about this thing called a skylight. I read it in Popper Mechanics somewhere. And, and there's steps that go up on the outside of the house that, in, in the city that go up to the roof on the outside. And these houses are ba- basically made of baked clay and stone. And you have a roof on the top that's going to be covered with large poles and, and with thatch on top of it. And there's going to be another layer going across the other way. And, and that layer of mud and all that stuff will dry in the Middle Eastern sun. So it's enough to hold people. People can stand up there. There's, there's no walls on, on, on that second floor. There's no roof on the second floor, but about eight months of the year, you're going to spend your late afternoons and your evenings out on that upper, upper roof there because it's hot. And during the day, your, your house becomes an oven, so you'll have your dinner up there, and many times you're going to sleep up there on the roof. There's no one on the roof, but the crowd's inside. And the crowd's all crushed, all pushed together, and there's people listening to the words because Jesus' main goal is to teach. He's teaching. And in the midst of this teaching, the type of love and purpose that the creation has always yearned from their creator, you hear this noise, this clumsy noise as these guys carry paralyzed Pat on his mat up those stairs on the outside and onto the top of the roof. And as they start breaking apart the thatch up there inside the crowded house, little, little chips, I'm sure, are falling down. You know, Jesus is teaching and kind of looking up. And the other people are like, what in the world is going on here? And then they get Pat. Once they get a hole big enough to push him through, they get Pat on the edge. And, and Pat's saying, there, guys, don't do this. And the owner of the house is saying, there, don't do this. And then the house gets quiet. People outside have this rear view looking through the windows of what's going on. And Jesus looks at their faith, one, two, three, four friends up there. The faith of the friends, not Pat's faith. I don't think he wants to be here. And he says to Pat, your sins are forgiven. And folks, do not underestimate, in the first century Jewish culture, this sends a bigger shockwave through the house than a man being dropped through a hole in the roof. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, there it is again, circle immediately. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? So picture this, you've got this little L-shaped couch there in the, in the main living room area, and, and, and it's got the recliners, and, and the religious leaders have sat down there. They probably showed up late because of who they are and who they, how important they think they are, and, and the other people gave up those seats to give them the good seats. And they are thinking to themselves when they hear Jesus say this, they're thinking, you've gone too far. That's blaspheming God in Israel. That is punishable by death. You can't say those words. And Jesus turns to them in their silence and goes, why are you guys thinking that? Uh, um, Thinking what? Oh, you're good. Oh, did you just know that I just said you're good? Oh, that's bad. Why are you thinking of those things? It's silent. They're thinking these things, but the Lord knows who they are. He knows what they're thinking. And the audience is packed, and they're watching this man still dangling there with the friends up there, sweat dropping down off their brows in the, in, in, in the sun and, and holding their buddy. And, and Jesus has looked at the religious, at the leader's thoughts right in front of you. He's revealed that he knows what they're thinking. He continues in verse 9. Jesus says, which is easier, 
to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed, there's our word amazed, this amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Your sins are forgiven. You can't say that. Why are you thinking that? I didn't think anything. Now back to the crowd, the religious. Uh, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? What's easier? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can't tell. You know, I could say to the first row up here, thanks for coming today. Your sins are forgiven. You know, that was easy. I'll do it again. I'll say this whole section here, your sins are forgiven. It's easy to say. It's easy to say it because we can't measure it. We can't do it. We don't have a sin meter up here on our, on our foreheads, you know, that's, that's green when we're good and, and, and red when we're in need of forgiveness. And when you say your sins are forgiven, you're like, you can't tell it. Someone could say your sins are forgiven all day long and you wouldn't know for sure. Jesus says, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and take your mat and walk? Well, it's easier to say sins are forgiven. And so, just so you know that the Son of Man, circle Son of Man, and if you're wondering what the Son of Man thing is all about, I'm glad you asked. Right next to Son of Man there, write Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. Daniel 7, 9 through 14. Remember Daniel, Old Testament prophet? He was taken down to Babylon when the Babylonians came and sacked Israel. And the book of Daniel is a story of, of Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They made a pledge. They said, we're not going to defile ourselves. We're not going to stain ourselves with the world. We're going we're to do our own thing instead. We're going to do God's thing. Whatever God says, we're going to follow him. And so God said, I've got plans for these guys. There'll be a fiery furnace in three chapters, and, and there's going to be a, a lion's den about five chapters in, but, but they're my guys because that's the kind of obedience I'm looking for, guys that have no insteads. And Daniel has a vision for Israel while he's in captivity in Babylon, a vision that the Israelites have held on to for hundreds of years. He says, let me tell you, this God is not done with us yet. This people, this nation, he writes down a vision in Daniel 7 that Israel has held on to. Daniel says in chapter 7, verse 13, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. That's where this phrase comes from. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days. And when you see the Ancient of Days, that's talking about God, God the Father. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You need to understand this to understand what was going on in that house with the hole in the roof and why the religious leaders were so upset. Because Jesus is standing here in chapter 2 in a room among religious leaders and he's saying what's easier to say your sins are forgiven or to tell a paralyzed man to walk? That's right. What you don't understand is I own the sin meter, he says. 
Just so you know that I have power to do that, I will now do it more difficult, do the more difficult because I am the son of man. And 83 times in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus uses this, this title to refer to himself. It's his favorite phrase. Just so you know that I am the son of man. And the hair on the back of everyone's neck would have gone up. I am the one who comes from God. I am the one who has all power, all authority, all dominion. I am over all people, all nations, all tongues, all tribes will one day worship me. My power, my authority, my kingdom will never pass away. It's eternal. It is from the beginning and it is the end. It is everything. And just so that you know that God is standing in your presence, take up your mat and get out of here. And as the man's feet hit the floor, he does what only he's seen. He picks up his mat and he takes his feet right, left, right, left. The crowd that's packed inside the house parts and he makes his way for the door and walks out back to that double wide trailer. His goal was to teach and even the most amazing of communicators was interrupted by a hole in the roof and a man being lowered through. And he will use this as a teachable moment. And he literally and spiritually split the crowd that day. Now that you've heard it from my own lips, and 83 times I will say it over and over again, I am the Son of Man. I am the one that comes on the clouds of heaven with all power, authority, all rule. And just so you know I can forgive sins, walk. And 2,000 years later, Humanity is still split along that line that says, is he or isn't he? Is he Messiah or is he myth? He can't just be a good teacher. In chapter one, he's already demanded everything. He's already told us that he thinks he's God and that he believes he can forgive sins. And, and, and if that's not true, if he's just saying this stuff, then, then he's, he's, he's not God. He's a lunatic. That's the only choices that you have. He knows what man's need is, but in Mark chapter 2, 1 through 12, he meets his need. You see, our greatest need is to be forgiven, not just to have our needs met. Our greatest need is to be forgiven, not just to have our needs met. Our greatest need is that all of us, every single one of us, have this sin virus. We're all lepers. We're all outside of God's kingdom, and none of us are allowed in. There's no sin in heaven, folks, and so I don't care how good you're trying to be. I don't care what family you come from. I don't care how many times you've been in church. I don't care if you had perfect Sunday school attendance as a child. All of us have sinned. All of us have done wrong. And the only way to heaven is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's only through Jesus. It isn't about religion. You see, these folks that were so upset there on that day, they were all into religion. They understood religion. They were religious folk. And again, come back next week, and we're going to see what happens to religious folk next week. And if you're a religious folk, you may not want to be here. Just being honest. Jesus comes and says, I came to, to cure, to forgive the sin virus that keeps you absent from God, outside of God's kingdom and untouchable. And he goes back to chapter 1. The kingdom of God is near. It's near. I can forgive sins and you can be in the kingdom of God. All it takes is repenting, changing your life, and believing in 
me. Not going through the motions, not just reading your Bible, not just going to a church, not just walking down an aisle, not even just being dunked in the pool. It's an actual change in your heart and following me. He hasn't just come to take your problems. He wants all of you. It's a surrender. And we come to an understanding where we see that the way he dealt with people then is the way he deals with people now. He's willing. And even though I have a truth in my life that may say that, yes, I've sinned, there's a greater truth that says this is what God does with it. And he will take it all to the cross. And he'll say, I will show you once and for all that I will cover everything. My death, my resurrection covers you. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mole and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.